G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. So today I would like to introduce you to Carmel Michael, who is doing a master's degree or master of arts in English language and literature. Welcome to Grad Chat, Carmel. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Carmel came to me asking to come on Grad Chat, but to take a slightly different angle to the show, and I'm all, all about that. This interview, therefore, will look at what Carmel is studying, but how she can also show ways to extend that knowledge into different forums other than the paper, as well as get a broader audience being able to join in with her exploration. So this is kind of like what Grad Chat's all about, is getting the, uh, our students' research out there to a wider audience. Now, your research topic is the disappearance narratives in contemporary global women's literature. Mm -hmm. I always love it when I I interview someone from the English department because they use such big words. (laughs) (laughs) And so often I have to go to my dictionary and check things out first. (laughs) So So do I. So do I. (laughs) I love it. But um, can you give a bit of an overview of what your research is going to be about? Yeah, so basically I'm looking at disappearance narratives, which are stories of disappearance, but it's a very specific kind of disappearance I'm looking at. And again, this is specifically women writers, but it's stories written by women that are fictional in which female characters intentionally disappear. So sort of disappear themselves. So it's not just kind of any sort of disappearance. It's a very particular angle on it. So I'm interested in, first of all, trying to understand what would impel someone to want to vanish themselves, leave behind. Okay, so this is not a physical disappearance? Sometimes. Sometimes. Right, but usually the physical disappearance in these stories is sort of the end point, and there's all kinds of disappearance that happens psychologically, sort of socially, even maybe metaphorically for that. So the, the physical disappearance doesn't have to be there, but it usually kind of is the end result of a lot of other kinds of sort of very slow vanishing. And it's usually connected, at least in the text I'm looking at, with either oppressive structures within their sort of intimate spaces or domestic spaces, and then also within a sort of history of big structural violence. Okay. So it's looking at the interaction between sort of like personal, political, especially through women's experience. And, and what, what era are you looking at? Because I know a lot of times in English, English literature, you can go back to the old English and mm-hmm. there was an in, in between Middle English and stuff like right. that. I mean, what kind of period is yours I'm, modern or? Yeah, I'm focusing on contemporary writers. So um, mostly post-World War II. Okay. So most of the stories are, are taking place during that time as well. So it's contemporary, but there is a a sort of precedence for women disappearing throughout literature. Um, There's actually a a lot of literature on women's disappearance just in general, even going back to like mythology and in a lot of sort of myths, there's a female character that disappears. The kind of trope of like the woman being taken by the underworld king kind of thing. And then of course there's a male character who has to go find them. And interestingly, the male's disappearance into the other world is often a kind of like self-discovery journey, a kind of 
completion. Right. Whereas the female version of this, the disappearance, usually she's sort of a victim. Right. And then has to be rescued. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting. I'm definitely going to be looking at that context in broader literature, but the texts and the kind of analysis I am looking, I'm using are much more contemporary. Okay, so I notice uh, there's a couple of authors that you have been looking at specifically. That's Ferrante and Robinson. Why did you choose those two to look at? Yeah, um, so the text specifically is Housekeeping. It's a, a the novel by Marilyn Robinson, came out around 1980. Amazing novel about women and a sort of family of women who are kind of outside typical social roles and the things that happen to them um, and the way they're looked upon by society. And a, a disappearance occurs as a major part of that um, plot. And then Elena Ferrante, um, she has a series called the Neapolitan Novels, um, four books that are hugely world famous. And again, the main character in this whole book, you find out at the very beginning of the whole series, has wanted to vanish her entire life. And so this long story of basically how these actually very extraordinary female characters, what they come up against, and this slow process of them separating from the structures around them. So I thought that these two, which it's really like five books. Oh, right. Bit of of reading there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But these two texts, which I actually started looking at in my undergrad and and did some work on my undergrad thesis on the Marilyn Robinson text, um, they're just really good starting places. And they also, one of them, so Elena Ferrante writes out of Italy and the story is placed in Naples and Marilyn Robinson is American and her story is placed somewhere in the Midwest. So they also have a broad enough scope because I'm I'm looking at world literature. So Mm -hmm. there is no specific geography because I want to look at the sort of larger global structures of power that influence women's lives that aren't confined by nationhood in any kind of way. Right. It was interesting you've chosen one has the Italian background Mm -hmm. kind of thing and one in the American background, particularly Mm post-war. Yes, exactly. um, That that must be fascinating. Yes. The the Ferrante text, the the history uh, of World War II and the kind of trauma of it is very much a part of the story, not only in sort of the mindset of the community, but also in the physical remains of damage and destruction from the war all around the characters. And so that's kind of a a really good visual way of looking at the ideas of like big structural violence. And in Ferrante's text specifically, it's very visible. Right. Okay. So that comes to my probably main question there. So You've been using Ferrante and Robinson's text as a way into defining women's disappearance narratives as a genre. But what do women's disappearance narratives teach us about the real world disappearance of women and girls through partner violence, sexualized violence and trafficking today? And what are the implications of individual difference disappearances to collective action for societal transformation? Now, that was a really a lot of questions there for you. <laughs> so you feel free to break that down yeah. a little bit. Well, I mean, the I first mean, it was a big question. Yeah, it is a big question. <laughs> and I mean, the first answer is I don't know yet. And that's why I'm doing this project. Right. right. But the second part of the answer is that I, as a person and as a researcher, I'm very concerned about that question, which is how, what do we learn from literature that can help us in the real world facing problems that are very real? So even though I want to study sort of at the level of discourse, let's say, or in the sort of realm of metaphor, in the realm of fiction, 
I think that so much powerful knowledge comes from understanding both the characters in these texts and the authors of these texts, understanding what impels these characters to disappear and what structures are forcing them. And if we can try and figure that out in a literary space, then there is some application to the real world because as we know, writing comes out of life and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, And because it's such an important issue, the real disappearance, I mean, we see this everywhere. We know in Canada, we have missing and murdered Indigenous women, and we've had inquiries into that. We know the problems. Same thing in the U.S. There's um, this amazing project called Make Women Count USA.org, I think. It's basically one woman who has volunteered to basically track and, and make a database every time a woman is killed in the U.S. I mean, this is dire stuff, but but globally we know that there's major problems with trafficking and we know that there are are things that affect women's lives still, despite all of the work that has been done and despite women's movements and awareness and this era of Me Too, which is incredible. Right. Which actually I'm kind of interested in Me Too as being a way of sort of appearance versus disappearance. It's a kind of saying like, hey... I'm here too. I'm in this space. This has occurred to me. Right. So it's kind of an interesting other side of what I'm looking at, which is kind of people who withdraw to the point where they no longer fit into any space because of the trauma they've experienced. Right. Me too is a way of kind of coming out and saying like, I fill this space and have experienced the trauma. So I find that really interesting and something I'd like to think about more. But that's a long way of saying I'm not sure, but I really hope that my study helps reveal some kind of strategies and some kind of like understanding of what these real structures are and like how we can um, work against them. I find it fascinating that because we go to books sometimes because we just want a good a good read. Uh-huh. But I found that even with Queen's Reads, I mean, you, you get a book, you think, oh, I'm just going to read this. It's, you know, it's, it's a cold day. I'm going to sit mm-hmm. in front of the fire and read a good book. And you read it just because it's a book mm-hmm. and just to get a bit of downtime and stuff like that. But then when we look more closely at books, then you suddenly realize there's all these underlying themes mm-hmm. that are emerging that until you look at each paragraph properly, you don't realize what it's trying to say. So there's all these underlying reasons behind a book. Yeah. And you wonder with the various authors, was that their intention in the first place or whether it was just... I'm writing a book about this. Yeah, I mean, one of the advantages of studying contemporary writers is that there's a lot of access to uh, their own words, interviews, things that they've talked about regarding their texts. With Ferrante, it's a little bit different. She's actually, really interestingly, Ferrante is is uh we don't know who she is oh is that right I didn't <laughs> yeah realize. that okay. that's a writing name but um she's disappeared yeah so i mean <laughs> it's that's kind of interesting to think about right like she purposely does not reveal you know no one is supposed is. to know who she is and there was a couple of years ago somebody decided to try and figure it out and sort okay. of reveal her identity and there was a lot of anger in the literary community about the kind of disrespect that that showed and also interestingly a lot of it was motivated by um some people thought that it's actually a man who writes these books because they're like ridiculously successful books and how could it possibly be be a woman? woman? So there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. But I do think that a piece of writing a novel, it's also valid as just a work, like Mm -hmm. something that you experience. And I think that it's important that things are 
meaningful and important and all those things, but also beautiful. You know, right. both the texts that I'm I'm looking at are incredibly beautiful to read, like lyrical writing, really, really high level literary writing that is also just an experience. Right, um, right. So it makes it easier to do all the reading. <laughs> yes, well, I, it would do, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So do disappearance narratives appear in other disciplines? And uh, I guess, how can cross-disciplinary research and interfaculty collaboration expand the utility and reach of literary studies? Yeah, that's a really good question. You I'm know, glad you liked that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I think... I'm trying to always remember that in our world and, and in academia, really, um, we have a tendency to silo things. And you're sort yes. of, the farther you get into your education, you're really kind of forced to specialize. Right. Especially as you get into a PhD level, you're kind of asked to really tune in on something, which is great. But so much can be learned by sort of mixing different viewpoints um, and different kinds of technical like ways of looking at knowledge because different disciplines look at like have different techniques of how they analyze ideas and how they research and so for instance I was just talking to another student recently who's in environmental studies and we were discussing this and he was like oh it's interesting you know disappearance narratives if you really think about a lot of talk around environmentalism, that's kind of all a disappearance narrative, right? We talk about the loss of species and the loss of things and something is kind of going away. And like, that was an interesting thing for me to think about. So I started sort of asking like, where else do we see these? And how that might help my research is that because I'm trying to get at the kind of like large scale structures that influence the individual people's disappearance, it's very likely that these same structures would also be influencing things like loss of natural spaces and loss of species. Um, You know, if you zoom out enough, these Mm -hmm. things don't just affect a specific population or just people. Right. So it's kind of a way of understanding how things are so tied together and also a way of keeping your mind fresh. (laughs) That's true. I mean, that's one of the things we like when we do our writing camps. It is cross-disciplinary. It's not just one program. Mm -hmm. And with that, the conversations that you can have, someone can say, I'm working on this and somebody, oh, that's interesting. And you once again, you get different perspectives on someone's research because people are coming from a different angle. Yeah. And it is important because it can open up your mind to other yeah. Other opportunities there. I mean, and there's like a long tradition of, you know, like the salon where like people right. sit and talk. And yes. I mean, there can be something kind of elite about that whole idea. But I think that there's a good, there's a really good side to it, which mm-hmm. is that like, first of all, collaboration yep. makes us better yep. as scholars and as people. Right. <laughs> and one of the things our world is really missing and, and is really troubled and sort of bad at right now is really sort of careful conversation about things. Mm-hmm. And so the the kind of the effort of getting interdisciplinary angles on things is also about building a conversation and building the ability to have really productive conversations. Right. I would like to continue now with talking about a new podcast that Carmel has produced, find out what it's about and why you see the need for such a podcast to be produced. So First of all, the name of your podcast is Hyacinth. Mm-hmm. Hyacinth. I, I remember that word, <laughs> that, that plant. Uh-huh. And it's a 
well, maybe you can tell me what is what is the Hyacinth podcast about? Yeah, so um, Hyacinth podcast is basically it combines scholarly research with the work of writers and artists. So each episode sort of combines um, usually a discussion with a scholar of some of some kind, and then paired up with the work of someone who's a writer or an artist who can sort of give us a broader understanding of the idea that's being explored. And and it's all sort of quite curated. I also write original music to go along with each episode to kind of tie it together aesthetically. Right. right. So you're, you're, you're a musician as well. Yeah, that's something that I've done since I was young. <laughs> and... <laughs> I'd love to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah. It would, never look, it would never sound right. <laughs> you know what? It's kind of a nice compliment to the sort of heavier things right, yes. <laughs> that I spend a lot of my time doing. And so um, going back to the idea of like a book being just a nice experience, mm-hmm. I kind of approach the podcast the same way. There's this quote that sort of guides me from Marilyn Robinson, actually. Um, she also does a lot of nonfiction writing, essay writing. She says, we know things in the ways we encounter them. And I really love that idea. So Hyacinth podcast is kind of an embodiment of this idea that there's more than knowledge just to someone talking. There's more to knowledge than someone just talking about a subject. Right, yes. And that maybe we can know it in a different way if it's presented in a kind of beautiful aesthetic way. And so that's that's one of my goals for Hyacinth. Why Hyacinth? Do you uh, like plants? <laughs> I, I do, but it's actually named after a verse from um, T.S. Eliot's very okay. famous <laughs> poem. Um, and it, it refers to this idea of some, some things being kind of so beautiful that you can't express them. Okay. So you're getting <laughs> yeah. other people to express it. Yeah, exactly. Right. And and it does go back to the things we're talking about um, with collaboration as well, because mm-hmm. putting multiple voices from multiple backgrounds and disciplines kind of gets at a topic in a different way than just having a single interview, maybe. Right. So, because I did listen to your first one. You've mm. only got one out so far, haven't yeah, you? Yeah. Yes. So I did listen to it. So thank you for that. For And anyone who wants to actually listen to the third pass podcast, it's on hyacinthpodcast.com. Mm-hmm. And I can put that up on our website later as well. But scholarly, scholarly research often occurs inside a closed loop, as we've been mentioning, and primarily discussed, published, and critically analysed among fellow academics. And now, many scholar, scholarly publications are also behind paywalls and not easily accessible. Mm-hmm. What if scholarly research could reach a broader audience? How might academic research be impacted by incorporating more creative narrative framework? And I, and I guess that's what you're trying to do with the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, just access to these kind of big ideas mm-hmm. that have the potential to shift our thinking. I mean, something that has really kind of changed my life is being able to finish my education and then continue with it. And it enriches my entire life in many right, ways, right. right? But this is like, I'm a very privileged person. The fact that I can do this, I've received scholarships to basically be able to do this work. And not right. everybody has had the kind of life that I don't know that the just this has fallen into place for and you know I feel like weirdly lucky I've had a really strange and difficult life but somehow <laughs> here I am talking you to are. you at Queens um, so I'm really grateful for that and I think that there were times in my life where I would turn on the radio or I would hear something online and it would it would just shift my entire day for right, me right it would take me out of whatever situation I was in that that was difficult. And it made me realize that there's like 
there are the world is huge yes and there are huge possibilities and so i i'm making this in a way that it is on all the podcast apps that you have to pay for but it's also streaming for free at hyacinthpodcast.com so anybody who has access to that can listen listen and sort of it's not, and it isn't my ideas. It's my presentation of ideas that I think are beautiful or right. important or right. have potential for something. And I like the fact you you bring in different people because, like you said, it's a collaboration of different mm-hmm. ideas. So that comes on to your first podcast again, which you call The Cultural Significance of Trees, mm. which I thought was a fascinating uh, title. What made you pick that topic and how in general did you pick all your topics? Yeah. Do you know what? To be very honest with you, the idea for the first episode really just came to me out of the blue one day um, (laughs) where I realized that, first of all, the podcast was kind of the perfect medium for me to mix my skills as like a songwriter and musician and then also as a researcher and writer um, because it really brings together sound and ideas. And to me, like that's like Either one isn't quite enough for me creatively, but together it's really fulfilling. And the idea for trees came about because I was raised um, in a very rural part of Cape Breton in Nova Scotia on a little farm, and my dad worked in forestry. So some of my earliest memories are um, him during tree planting season and like coming with a truckload of these tiny little saplings to plant and the smell of trees. And we lived in a wooden house and I stacked wood as a little kid and I don't know trees have just had this kind of like very special place in my imagination and I wanted to kind of think about them in a not just emotional sort of nostalgic way but I wanted to understand like what is it about them like here's the thing people have studied absolutely everything in the world. That's what's great about living right, at this right, moment. Right. And so you can research basically any topic and find out this really expansive version of why something might really get you in the heart. Well, it's interesting because in the podcast, uh, you chose an urban planner, Adam Fine. Mm-hmm. You chose a historian, Dr. Martha um, Nor- Nukunus, Nor- yeah, Norkunis. Norkunis. Uh-huh. and an instrument maker, Otis Thomas, uh-huh. and even your mum came in <laughs> yeah. on the interview, which was awesome. <laughs> so was that to get, like you said, get different interpretations of the topic and then be able to interweave into your own thoughts? Yeah, well, funny story about my mom. She actually was not <laughs> supposed to be in the episode, but um, <laughs> <She did well. laughs> I was testing my equipment and I was like, right. I need to test to make sure I can record a phone call and you just call someone <laughs> random who won't know anything about this doesn't matter so I just called her was like hey mom and she's like hi I was like how's it going she's like what's I'm fine why are you kind of and I was <laughs> like oh nothing and she goes what do you want <laughs> are you recording me because she knows me All right. <laughs> and it was so I was like how could you tell she's like I don't know and so then I told her listen I haven't I literally came up with this idea in my brain and I was too scared to tell anyone about it because I thought I would probably do it terribly so for a good month or so I worked on this episode and didn't tell anyone even my closest friends and I was like listen I'm making this podcast and it's about trees and then she started talking about trees and I happened to be recording and she said these like 
beautiful thing. Right. And right. and I thought it would just be really fitting to put her in my very first podcast ever. <laughs> <laughs> and thankfully, she's so eloquent and intelligent about it. So it was nice. <laughs> but, but how did you get in, involved with like Otis and Adam and, and Martha? Because yeah. I mean, they're from all over. They're not just in Canada. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Dr. Martha Norkunas, I had, she just came up in my research. I read um, one of her papers that I thought was amazing. And I'm not sure why I was brave enough to just send an email and request an interview but I was and she said yes so that was like completely just one of those learning experiences and there were a couple other scholars I reached out to um, who like we just couldn't make the schedules work but Martha was amazing because she was so generous with her time and her ideas and really excited about the process of being part of the podcast so that's great Otis Thomas actually is from where around this area where I grew up actually about 10 minutes down the road so So you knew it I was aware of his work and I knew him and same with Adam Fine, I just happened to sort of like, it, he was like an acquaintance among other yeah. friends. And so I don't know, there's some kind of weird creative process that happens where you start thinking about one topic. And over the process of a few days of thinking about this, you kind of start making lists of things that might contribute. And so far, it's worked out. But I don't know, I might have terrible ideas in the future. Who knows? But did you go to one first? And then from that first interview, realize how you could bring in questions for the other? Mm, Not really. It was more that I want people from different kinds of so like an art like Otis Thomas, he is an artist, really, he's coming from like, Mm -hmm. but he also has technical knowledge about crafting instruments. But mostly he really thinks like an artist and a philosopher, really. Okay. Um, And Adam Fine, he's much more kind of practical. I wanted something kind of hands on and practical. Um, Dr. Martha Norkunis, of course, is from academia Mm -hmm. she's the scholar and my mom is my mom so (laughs) she doesn't need any other introduction (laughs) no she doesn't mums are mums aren't they (laughs) i love it so so you bring in not just the literary but the science you know the role of urban spaces and more was that i mean i guess it's not intentional because you said it just happened Mm. well a lot of the podcast is made out of you know i have like half an hour or 40 minute conversations with each person and then it gets kind of edited down Mm -hmm. to like five minutes our best five to seven minutes or something so yes for certainly i i do a bunch of reading and research to get my mind into a kind of theme that i want to ask all of the the guests but a lot of it comes from what they say and the kind of really Mm -hmm. great moments that come out of our conversation. So then later when I edit it all together, I can kind of build a tapestry of the really great things that they've said. And I don't really know what the story of the of the episode is going to be until I've had all those conversations. And the music actually comes as a reaction to that. So the music comes as a kind of creative response to what I've learned and the kind of um, feeling or the kind of artistic theme that comes out of the conversations. I take it then you really enjoy, or is this the first time you try to do a podcast? Yeah. Okay, so clearly you're on your way because, I mean, like I said, I've, I listened to the first one and I, I loved it. Mm, thank you. So do you have topics already lined up for yeah, the other ones? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's going to be about, um, there's going to be one podcast a month, basically, because okay. it's a, it's a, 
pretty um, intense process to make each one. It is. Um, but I do. The, my next uh, my next one is actually, um, it's about falconry and trauma. Oh, fantastic. Falconry <laughs> and trauma. Okay, that's a... Yep. Okay, I wouldn't have put those two together, but exactly. there we go. <laughs> um, so I talked to some fascinating people about that. And then I have some, um, an episode coming up about memory okay. and memoir. So I talked to a bunch of people about that. Um, an episode coming up about beauty, the kind of scholarly idea right. of beauty, which is... Uh, I've had some very interesting conversations about that. And then I have um, a live episode that I taped actually in Halifax, Nova Scotia, before I came here to Queens, um, which is about storytelling. And I have a really diverse um, kind of array of people. And there's going to be a lot more. (laughs) See, I find this fascinating because you clearly love literary work. Mm. But you're kind of using that background that you have in that and then also being able to express yourself. I mean, some people think if you're in English language and literature, it can only be the written form. Yeah. And you're proving that English language can be more than just the written form. Mm-hmm. You can put it into a podcast and bring in all these other elements as well. So from, from what you know from books and things that you've read that might have inspired you and then bringing in other elements too. Yeah. For anyone who is listening who also did an English degree in their undergrad, they will know that the most common question you get is like, oh, that's so nice. You're an English major. What are you going to do with that? But you see, you've already proven there's lots you can be doing with I this. I mean, and that's the kind of thing. If you if you are in any of the humanities these days, a lot of people who have this kind of very pragmatic idea of what education means cannot might miss what the skills that you get as right. in studying literature, first of all, which is analytic skills and being able to put together research into an idea, a product at the end. Yes. And also just having a bigger understanding of the world, which I think is supposed to make us better people and better citizens. I hope that's what I'm trying to be. <laughs> well, I think you are because, you, I mean, you clearly like talking. <laughs> and um, I say thank that, you. No, I say that in a good way. I say that in a good way because it's, it's, it's refreshing to see a scholar wanting to get their message out there. And right. so you're not scared to come on the radio. You're not scared to put a podcast out there. You're not scared to call up people out of the blue and say, "Well, hold on, I am on? terrified." Well, you can't be terrified. I'm doing it but anyway. Doing it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we all get terrified. The knees are knocking, all those sorts of yeah. things. But but you're putting yourself out there to express what you're thinking right now, mm-hmm. and I think that's really really important. And as and you actually hit it the nail on the head when you said, "Too many times people think." particularly in, in English or the humanities, there's only one thing that you can do, and right. it's not. Yep. I mean, you, you can clearly go on radio and everything. So mm-hmm. there's lots of things you can be exploring. So I'm, I'm glad you actually said that. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Now, I'm just going to say a couple of other things, because we've done your, your, your research that you're going to be starting, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we've done your, your uh, podcast. But you did mention you like to play music and, and write songs. Have you always written songs? Maybe you're going on the, you know, the song, song land or something and, and write some special song for someone. Or is it more just for yourself? Um, Another no. expression of yourself? I, I have written songs since I was a little kid. Um, my dad actually wrote songs and played music around the house. He kind right. of did it more for himself. And then, so was, I actually thought I started playing guitar when I was like seven my dad taught me to and I thought it was actually kind of just a normal thing that you do like I thought everyone just sort of did this or at least one person in your family did this right and then I grew up and found out that isn't true that like not everybody's dad spent time like helping them write their first song when they were a kid right (laughs) Uh, so that was a nice thing to have Um, but yeah I actually made some albums 
and have done some touring and everything. I, oh, I split really? my undergrad up with a bit of time in life as a touring musician. Which... Fantastic. <laughs> so you can write about that too. Yeah, I mean, it's been a bit of a ride. <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> well, I don't know um, how well you know Kingston, but Kingston has quite a vibrant music scene. Mm-hmm. So I hope you get out and about and yeah, go and listen too. to a lot of that that's yeah, going on. Absolutely. So I'm we're, excited. We're very fortunate. A here. bit of a legacy. Yeah. It is a bit yeah. of a legacy, yes. <laughs> All right, so Carmel, we're going to have to call it quits. Thank you very much for coming on and chatting about your work and particularly your podcast. Like I said, everyone, if you want to listen to the podcast, go on to hyacinthpodcast.com. So the first issue is there, but there's more coming. So uh, I'm looking forward to listening to those as well. So thank you very much for coming on. And best of luck with everything you're going to do. I think you're just going to do fabulously, (laughs) both as a scholar, musician, you name it, podcaster. Thank you very much for your vote of confidence. I appreciate it. You're going to be just fine. So thank you. Thank you. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcast, or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.